Father, we come to you, Lord, today. And, and Lord, we're so thankful. We can just lock wrists, uh, as it were, with people around us. And we know we can pray alone, but Father, you have commanded your people get together and that we would not forsake assembling, that we would assemble on Sundays so that we can worship, we can praise you, and we can pray. And Lord, when we think about Matthew Henry's acronym on prayer, the word ACTS, Lord, we want to start off with adoration because you are so worthy. Lord, we want to make confession because we have in so many ways not lived up to what you are worth. And uh, so, Lord, we want to thank you, though, for what you've given us in resources. We can do exactly all that you tell us because of your grace. And so, Lord, supplication, we're praying you help us do that. Even do that right now. Because, Lord, all the praise didn't, isn't, isn't building things up to me, isn't building things up to the speaker. It is building up to the word of God. So, Holy Spirit, speak to us now. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated in the Lord's presence. And, um, you know, I thought uh, Sean and I were talking in the back about whether or not that was a typo on the title slide of that one song, Come All You Unfaithful. And we thought, well, now it's out of typo, but it's, no, it's a new song, it's really good. And, and if you are calling people to come who are unfaithful, as many of us are, then we are calling them to come back to the faith, to come to the truth, to come rest in Christ's finished work, and, the, and especially to come to Christ as the truth, because only the truth is going to show you the way. And in our country, in our culture, the spirit of the age is to take you away from the truth. And I don't know if you've noticed this about our society right now, but we are typically the most intolerant against anyone who is going to judge our immorality. And that just kind of gets under our skin. And, uh, you know, that makes us, we, we don't want anybody judging us for how we're going to live uh, our life. And so we need to be called back to the truth and back to a waking reality as the Word of God gives it to us. And so what uh, we're going to do today, as the old preacher would say, Romans chapter 13, if you'll turn there with me now, this is going to be straight with, you know, the old preacher would say straight with no chaser. Now, I don't know what that means. Uh, I, think, I think it has something to do with like undiluted, uh, full, full strength. And today we'll be kind of straight with chaser. Okay, so first half of the chapter is going to be pretty straight. And it's going to go down hot. And you're going to be coughing, and your nose is going to be burning, and, and then it will get to the latter half of the chapter, we'll give you some chaser, because for the last 20 years at least, in American elections, you know, between elections, abortions, unequal incarceration, school shootings, what I call the P3s, the, the three Ps, the pandemic, the protests, and the politics, they have raised certain very important questions for every believer, like, what is the Christian's responsibility to act patriotically? How should Christians react to corrupt systems of government? Should Christians pay taxes, give their money to those governments? When is civil disobedience justified or necessitated 
And to what extent should that be exercised? Should Christians fight in wars that are waged basically for oil addiction? Now, that's not my phrase. That is President Bush's phrase when he said that we are a country addicted to oil. Should Christians fight in wars waged for that? How are churches to respond when governments act in discrimination against religious institutions? So I guess what I'm trying to ask you today is how should heavenly citizens live in an earthly kingdom? And Paul addresses this essential and important question for us, us who are the new Romans in Romans chapter 13. So in a culture increasingly hostile to Bible Christianity and government increasingly hostile to biblical morality, which is the only morality that matches up to waking reality, uh, you know, about, about the truth, about the way things really are. Well, if, you know, if everything is going in this life is against us in that, what can the righteous do? What is a believer's responsibility? Will Paul endorse the validity of even a corrupt government? Or should the Christian fight and wage a visible physical war? Obviously, for centuries in church history, many times, those who called themselves Christians believed exactly that. So this whole chapter is about Christians in an earthly kingdom. And I will admit to you up front, Christians sometimes respond intolerant, unjust, and unequal. And I'll admit to you, Christians sometimes thwart any kind of social progress. And I'll admit to you, Christians sometimes act as enemies of the state if they do not like that state. So Romans 13 teaches us four things regarding this crucial issue. Regarding any earthly kingdom, first off, notice if you will, this is number one, you must understand it is sanctioned by God, whoever is its head. You think about what happens in the opening chapters of Genesis, and you know, not much is said. Not much is said at all. For 50 chapters, a book 50 chapters long, not very much is said about the earth and the age before the flood. That whole dispensation is just kind of glossed over. Because I think for dispensation number one after the fall, God said, okay, you had the knowledge of good because you knew me. But, but then you disobeyed me so you could get the knowledge of evil. So, okay, I'm going to take my hands off. My spirit is not going to strive with you. And let's see, let's see how that works out for you. And it was so bad, he had to press reset and completely start over. Just, just take Noah and his family out and put them in an ark and, and bring them through the flood. And then, so then what you find... After that first dispensation and doing it that way is done, there are three institutions that God set up to save sinful humanity from itself. He gave us the family there in Genesis. He gave us the church, Acts chapter 2, and he gave us human governments, Genesis 9 verse 6. And God has not revoked his promises or his providence to operate through all three. And here's the thing that messes us up about politics. God is operating providentially to bring about his promise. God is operating 
providentially through politics in order to bring about his promises. And so you should vote because that is patriotic. And the Christian has a special opportunity and obligation after that point to trust God's providence through the operation of that process and our government's three branches. So we can vote for change, but the more important thing is we act to win souls and then we trust to see God work. So verse 1 of Romans 13, Romans 13, 1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And God sanctions earthly kingdoms for two primary reasons. First, letter A, to administrate justice. Now I want you to look at verse 3 of Romans 13. I want you to read this in the voice that so many of us refuse to listen to today. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. A state administers justice against criminals inside and against enemies outside. And that statement overall is true for the government of any given country, even though there are some criminals they ignore, and there is some justice which is administered unequally. But you know, here's the dealio. States cannot legislate morality. The government, no government can legislate morality, which is the exact reason that they have to legislate against immorality. Since the state cannot make you love your neighbor, it has to write laws that will keep you from hurting him. So it's not the job of the state to legislate morality. The job of the state is to legislate away immorality in such a way that I have a clear path because it is the job of the church to change hearts. They legislate behavior, we change hearts with the gospel. So the obvious problem with our founding documents is that there's no constitutional standard of morality. Not in the U.S. Constitution, not in the Declaration of Independence. There's no form of that word used. And the only standard that it talks about is setting weights and measures. And yet at the basic level, all human government legislates against those who hurt others or those who go against the common good. So the issue of the day is not even really morality. The issue of the day for the Christian is biblical authority. Because if you had biblical authority, you would have godly morality. So then second, second on the other hand, this is letter B, God sanctions earthly kingdoms to defend us from enemies. So the state reserves the power to wage war. Now watch with me in verse 4 of Romans 13. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. 
So the state levies taxes so that it can conscript and equip soldiers and direct the military industrial complex, as President Eisenhower called it, in order to supply swords of sufficient caliber and technology and also to fund the R&D over ever more effective killing machines and killing methods. But these are legitimate powers that God allows to the state. So second, second, regarding any earthly kingdom, this is number two, Christians must understand that kingdom is subject to God regardless of who is controlling it, whoever is controlling it, whoever is controlling it whether it's the people who you elected who say they're controlling it or some hidden hand controlling it somehow. Verse 2, look at verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. God has not forfeited any of his sovereign rights by delegating to human governments these particular responsibilities. All authority, all power ultimately belongs to God. And so that means, and this is letter A, no ruler exists apart from divine providence. You say, Alan, what about the evil of colonialism? What about the evil of communism? What about the Islamic republics? What about socialist Marxist countries? Well, Paul, Paul is writing this while living under Nero Caesar. Tyrannical, cruel, totalitarian. I mean, not only did they approve of abortion, but it was very late term. I mean, they were really cool with homosexuality, kind of like from the top down and from Nero down. And they, they supported all the marital and family states that we see existing in our own society in America today. And basically, there's no decision uh, our Supreme Court has made in the last 20 years that really goes against first century Rome. But that authority existed for the same reason as, as our authority, authorities exist, because it's God-appointed. But the church is to be not God-appointed. We're not God-appointed, we're God-approved. So then second, second letter B, God is able to use despots to accomplish his divine purposes. And part of the reason that we trip on that is because we do not have God's perspective on human history. God raised up Pharaoh to display his own glory and power. We read that back in chapter 9, verse 17. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to execute judgment on his own unfaithful people, Israel, Jeremiah chapter 25. So quite frankly, and this is our first point for study, unless you understand your Bible dispensationally, like we teach you in Discipleship too, like we teach you in our Living Faith Bible Institute, then you are in the dark about God's purpose for eternity in relationship to what he is allowing right now. Because there are times, God doesn't just create good, he uses evil to create good. Because God's deferring to your unfettered free will. And so, and so God is using darkness to create light. So I'm, all I'm saying is, God is good all the time. And he is also sovereign. So look, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, there on your handout, as Abraham and God are going back and forth 
about the status of Sodom and Gomorrah, whether or not God is going to wipe that place out by reason of what has been created there. And uh, Abraham's like, well, you know, if there's a certain leavening aspect and a certain saltiness and light of, of, of believers in you, will you spare the entire city? Because after all, he says, Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And that's a rhetorical question because the answer is always yes. He always does righteousness. So what we know is one thing. God is righteous even when he uses evil. So what we do is another thing. We need to act spiritually, independently, right now. We don't need political independence. We need spiritual freedom to stand up for the gospel and to shine the light, to save souls. Because you've got to understand this. Jesus, when he comes back this time, he's coming back as king. And the, you know, what a king has to have to be a king, a king has to have a place, a land, a dominion, someplace he's ruling over, and he has to have subjects. And we get the opportunity to bring in more subjects into the kingdom. And then let God hold the governors and the governments accountable, which he has appointed. Now, that does not mean that we do not protest injustice. That does not mean that we do not decry inhumane treatment. That does not mean that we do not work to make the city and our society a better one. As a matter of fact, if you look at Jeremiah 29, verse 7, he says in a circumstance much worse than the one we're living in, and seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And you pray unto the Lord for it. You pray to the Lord even for the people who carted you off in exile. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. So we applaud the model and the courageous example of people like William Wilberforce or Martin King. But third, regarding any earthly kingdom, and this is number three, we must understand it is to be supported even when it rules against us. So based on Bible principles, Paul makes an appeal. And he is so relevant to our times because he singles out these two supporting things. First letter A, by obeying its laws. Verse 5, Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, not just because of the consequences, but also for conscience sake. So if we violently resist the authority ordained by God, we're resisting God. So we submit not only for fear of punishment, but because to refuse to do so, sears and scorches and singes our own conscience toward God. So it's fine. Do what the authorities allow. And you know, you know we can march, we can protest. And uh, that's fine. And at the moment that the police declare it a riot and, and, and say, okay, this is illegal, so disperse. Well, you don't, have, you don't even have to disperse. Sit down and, and wait until they carry you to the paddy wagon. That, that, okay, that's civil disobedience. That's peaceful resistance. All that is fine. So, okay, so we've got to obey its laws. But then second, second letter B, we've got to pay its taxes. 
Did I say this was straight? The first half of this chapter was just kind of straight. Uh, Verse 6, For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute, to whom tribute is due. Okay, pay your tax to the federal government. Custom, to whom custom is due. Oh, that's all the sales taxes and all the different localities. Fear, to whom fear. So it doesn't stop there. Honor, to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And Jesus practiced in Matthew 17 what he and Paul both preach in Matthew 22. So, I mean, Jesus, whether you were looking at the, the religious institution, he said, okay, we pay our temple tax. Peter, go out and get it and pay it for you and me both. And, you know, somebody gave him a coin with Caesar's picture on it. Well, who is this on the coin? Well, probably whoever it belongs to. So if he wants it back, you give it back to him. And we know that some of our money goes to fund things that go against Bible righteousness, just like it did in Jesus' day and just like it did in Paul's. So we make up for that by tithing and ministry. Getting, getting people saved and discipled so that they can function in God's kingdom. And yet, having said all of this, I have to declare unto you all the counsel of God and the Bible's complete word on this subject because there are exceptional times when the godly and right thing to do is obey God rather than man which means regarding any earthly kingdom, and this is number four, you must understand it is civilly disobeyed in extenuating circumstances. You remember Paul's starting point in verse one? A government's power is ordained by God, which means the government gets it from God, which means the government's power is not absolute power. A husband's power in his family, over his wife, or whatever. That's not absolute. A parent's power over children, that's not absolute. A church's power, a pastor's power is not absolute. It is all relative to God and the Word of God. So all power is relative, subject to God's absolute authority. So watch what this means exactly. Exodus chapter 1. There on your handout, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not, they did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And verse 21, and it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. So the Hebrew midwives disobey Pharaoh's order to chuck all the male children to the crocodiles. And because they were willing to do that, God builds him a house. I think that's kind of cool. I mean, God is so pleased with that. Okay, what did Jesus say that he's doing now in the meantime since he left and until he comes back? What's he doing for us? Well, in my father's house, many mansions. And I go to prepare a place for you. Daniel chapter one, Daniel reasons with city hall and he gets a reprieve so that he doesn't, have to not eat kosher. 
Okay, so he doesn't have to eat all that unclean stuff. He can keep kosher. And, and they, they, they say, okay, we'll make an exception for you. But in Daniel chapter 3, there is no reasoning with Nebuchadnezzar. So they disobey. And they disobey, but look at how they do it. Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful, we're not full of care, we're not, we're not tripping on answering you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king, but if not from the fiery furnace... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And then later in the book, Daniel continues to pray to God, even after doing that is made illegal. Peter and John refuse to be silenced when they are commanded to stop teaching and stop preaching in the name of Jesus and stop witnessing about how he saved them. Okay, wait, because this is our second point for study. Christianity is built on the blood of martyrs who determined to disobey governments and obey God instead. That's how Christianity was built. And you're afraid of going against what your peers think or your professors or your parents or so. You're afraid of standing for the truth as it is in the Word of God and biblical morality. You're afraid of that and what everybody else thinks. When the Christians of ages past sailed on bloody seas to get us down to where we are today. I mean, Earth's earliest Christians refused to burn incense to an image of Caesar and call him Lord. And they were willing instead to be lion food and gladiator fodder and nothing about fighting in order to overthrow anything. So when is civil disobedience justified? Let me give you three based on the parallel companion passages that we just looked at. First, letter A. When earthly kingdoms outlaw preaching the gospel. That is what Peter and John got thrown in jail for. There is a lot of persecution that you could still avoid and maybe you are avoiding because you have shut up about Christ's finished work, about God's grace to save you, and about how that change, that conversion, is actually going to change your lifestyle. It's going to change what the Bible calls your conversation in this world. It's going to change the way you live. And then second letter B, Here's, here's a second time for civil disobedience when earthly kingdoms prevent corporate worship. A lot of places in the world today, the true church is underground. And it's underground because they practice quiet non-compliance. So you remember, uh, you know, when the mask mandate was in effect in Jackson County and uh, independence with its own um, uh, city uh, health, health department said, okay, we're going to opt out of that. And so, uh, okay, kind of a quiet non-compliance was allowed. But when that one restaurant here in Blue Springs said, oh, no, we're thumbing our nose at you, uh, you know, active disobedience was not. And so, so they got shut down. And uh, okay, it, it works like that. Uh, uh, in some places for the church, it is either the government's way or the highway. 
Pastor Li Dexuan was re- released by Chinese authorities with a stern warning to stop his activities or face arrest and imprisonment again. Li was arrested by Chinese officials for the 13th time on April 11th for illegal preaching. His six-month stretch of persecution began the previous October when a mob of police destroyed the primitive shelter used as a church by Lee and the Christians of the village of Huadu. The next day, police arrested Lee, his wife, three others for continuing their services. The weekly meetings in Huadu, which drew hundreds of believers uh, 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 in the Chinese underground church movement, was something they were against because the Chinese is trying to do its best to snuff that out. Third, letter C, when earthly kingdoms require immoral activities. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the confessing, what was called the confessing church in Germany at that time was right to resist Adolf Hitler and speak against his immoral practices, particularly the racism against the Jews related to how Hitler and his crowd was saying, look, let, it all goes back to the Rothschilds. Check the bloodlines. That's what it's about. And Bonhoeffer's, Bonhoeffer and others were right to stand up and say, no, we ain't going for that. Corrie ten Boom and her family were right to hide Jews in their home and protect them from Nazi Germany's death camps. Rosa Parks was right to, re- to refuse to leave her seat in the colored section of the bus because too many white men got on to fit into the white section of the bus. So she refused to get up and go to the back of the bus and stand the rest of the way home because because of Montgomery's Jim Crow laws. How do you keep balance in this? By not breaking the law of God in order to defend the law of God. So I'm going to defend the law of God. I can't break the law of God. Now that means that abortion may very well be murder, but there's no law that you have to get one. So there's no justification in committing murder in order to prevent it. Why? Because the overriding principle is this, verse 9. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, kill, steal, bear false witness, covet, and if there be any other commandment, It is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's what thou shalt do. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we must submit to the law of love. Now, since that was straight, since that was straight, and your eyes are watering and your nose is burning and you you can feel it going down, That's a wake-up call. And and this wake-up call is to evangelism and discipleship and activity and ministry. Because this is a wake-up call to heavenly citizens. The late evangelist Vance Havner once said, there is anarchy in our culture, there is apostasy in our churches, and there is apathy in the pews. It is time to wake up. So stop being lulled to sleep by politics and elections and vaccines and mandates and protests and movements because our God calls us to a spiritual awakening. What exactly must we wake up to according to the Bible? This is number one. This is woke Christianity. Wake up 
to living in radical love. And you know, I think we're not much different today than Samson of old. I hope all of you single men are listening to me. Because he fell asleep with his head in the wrong lap. And while he was sleeping with the wrong woman, the source of his strength was shaved away from him so that when he finally did wake up, it was too late. And the saddest thing of all is he didn't even know it. I mean, he went out to fight him just like before. And I think in, you know, in most cases, church marketing probably qualifies as false advertising. So I think a lot of churches are lying about their product because it's not living up to their claims. And we'd never have to market a church if the members of the church really had love to each other and their neighbors with this kind of God-given, Holy Spirit-driven, Jesus-qualified love. You know, I find that in, in some modern Christians, we have this self-righteousness, as similar to what Christ condemned, actually, in the Pharisees. And Paul knows that won't work in Rome. That won't play among Romans. And instead, we must be all about Christ and him crucified because that is how God loved the world. What, I, what do I have to do with arguing any, with anybody about gender-bending issues? I mean, waking reality is obvious. I know no one was born that way. You can't do it that way and get a natural birth. I mean, it's just so obvious. But, but what do I have to do with arguing with anybody about that? I need to stick to Christ and Him crucified because when they come to Christ, then they're, they're going to respond. They're responding to the Holy Spirit. And that will bring them back to morality based on God's truth. Yet we're so quick to condemn and judge and so slow to love. And usually we only love them if they start liking and looking like us. So, first letter A, this is a broad debt we will never completely repay. Verse 8, owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now, does that mean that a Christian cannot buy a car or get a mortgage? Well, no, that means when the payment comes due, you make it. That is when it is owed. And you do understand that you owe a debt to every person of love. Since, letter B, it is a Bible principle guiding Christian living. Verse 9, for this, and he goes through that list of commandments and says, okay, I can put it, I can condense it down into one. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And that alone fulfills every expectation God has for you after you get saved. And when we wake up in a gray fog and the lines are blurred by the media and the anti-media, we must default to love. You say, Alan, what if I don't know what to do? Do the thing that most expresses love. Because in the final analysis, letter C, it never, ever inflicts harm. Verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Since it inflicts no ill to its neighbor, why do you inflict ill on your spouse? Why do you inflict ill on your kids? Why do you inflict ill on your employees? Love is willing to sacrifice self-interest for their best interest. And it would rather endure hurt than make somebody else feel hurt. So love can rebuke, 
but not for your own selfish reasons. And love can apply the scalpel to the tumor and act in defense of your family. But that is quite different than the way we tend to treat one another. Because I'm going to say we go backwards. We tend to tolerate all the self-destructive stuff. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So you don't get life except by walking in the way which is defined by his truth. And that means when you step outside the truth about things like biblical morality, you've ended up in a self-destructive lifestyle. But we tolerate self-destructive stuff and then hurt people over insignificant stuff. So this is a wake-up call for heavenly citizens because second, second, this letter too, we must wake up to shining with radiant light. Why? Well, first letter A, because it's time to wake up. Verse 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The salvation of our body as well as of our soul is closer than when any of us first got saved. And so the hour is urgent because the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, and our coming back with him is close. And second, letter B, it's, it is time to dress up, not just wake up. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. The works of darkness are anything you do which brings shame, brings embarrassment, even if that is brought on others because you are too callous and your conscience has been cauterized by your continual sin so that you don't feel it. But if you would be ashamed to be in the middle of that argument when Jesus comes, then stop arguing and be the person of peace because it's not enough to cast off. And you'll notice casting off, you're just casting off clothing because this world and the devil is not going to attack you if you're doing the works of darkness. But once you get that cast off, you got to put armor back on. And you also must put on, as Ephesians 6 verses 12 to 18 tells us, the armor that we are armed with by God and peace is one of those pieces. And as a matter of fact, it is the one that proves you've accepted the gospel. So wake up. Wake up, number one, shine, number two, because number three, letter C, it is time to clean up, verse 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, and that pretty much covers all the bases. Stand against darkness, but don't just stand still, walk in the light. Walk as if the day had already dawned and Jesus was right here with us. You say, Alan, someday I'll get myself straightened up and, and cleaned up. No, you will never clean up yourself. You give yourself too much credit. That will never happen to you. So why don't you let the word of God do the work of cleaning you up by walking in the light, of straightening you out by walking in the light? It is later than you think. Later in this age, later in your life, later in opportunity. Are you saved? 
Did you get baptized? Are you tithing? Have you been discipled? Are you willing to disciple someone else like you? What is your ministry service here as a member? Are you a member involved in missions in that way? I mean, this is not yet the year we're going to be able to take an all-church trip to El Salvador. They just opened back up last weekend. And, and, you know, even though other countries are opened up, America is now kind of closed to people coming back. And, and it's just really difficult to go any place right now unless you're going to quarantine for 10 days. And that gives you exactly two days to minister. So we may sacrifice for pastors in Zambia, but if we do, it'll be a select few because the pandemic prevents them from hosting a whole team. But what are you doing now to get ready for the next year? I mean, we're giving you way advance warning now for you to be able to save up money to be able to go. It is later than you think. So in the final analysis, this is number three, heavenly citizens must be woke to submitting to royal lordship, verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Here are two simple but life-changing biblical commands. First letter A, commit your life to Jesus as Lord because put ye, put ye on means a once for all final irrevocable you may fall down, but you will never turn around type of consecration. And this is why Jesus demands each disciple take up his cross daily in order to follow him. Luke 9 verse 23. Because dying daily to self ensures that Jesus reigns as Lord. How do you miss that all these years? Because if you do that, then second, letter B, you can stop letting your flesh lead you away from God and into sin. Either Jesus is Lord or your anger is. Either Jesus is Lord or your lust is. Either Jesus is Lord or your addiction is. So wake up, sit up, get up, shape up, straighten up, clean up, stand up, and speak up. Jesus is Lord. Will you say that with me this morning? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Because whatever you're going to do for God, you've got to start doing today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And you do understand that this is a spiritual way of living, which requires a spiritual life. So then maybe the reason you resist a spiritual, Bible, truth-based way of living is because you don't yet have spiritual life. That means you need to be born again. You need to be born a second time, born by faith in Jesus. Will you get saved today so that Jesus can shed his love abroad in your heart, especially ahead of this holiday time? Because then it will produce the effects of love through you to others. That is the kind of life God wants you to have today by his grace. And it is your faith in his grace that activates Christ's finished work on, on your behalf. So all you have to do today is pray. Just have the faith to pray and say, God, save me today for Jesus' sake. Jesus, I see what you did on the cross in dying so that my sins would be atoned for.
So today I believe in Jesus. I believe for what you are promising me, eternal life. Let me start with the life, the eternal life. And then I'll trust you, Jesus. I'll just keep trusting that that is what will give me a spiritual way of living. So Jesus, I'm placing all of my weight on the fact of your sacrifice on the cross and that God was satisfied, therefore I am justified. So today I turn around and I offer you my life as a living sacrifice back to you. Here, Jesus, I give you my life because I believe. If you pray that right now, God will put you in Christ and the Holy Spirit in you. Just pray and ask him to save you today. And if you do that, meet us here at the front and and let us record it and rejoice with you. I have a book to give you on the next steps for new believers. Go ahead and stand, bump elbows with your neighbor as we get ready to pray and then sing on our way out. Next Sunday is a Sunday right before Christmas. We're going to talk about that stage which we've all been in for the last two years. It's not red and it's not green. It is yellow. And, and we're going to talk about that actually from the Christmas story itself. And also a junior choir doing their Christmas performance on Saturday. But on Sunday, them and the Harvest Kids who've been learning some of the same songs are going to lead our worship next Sunday. So invite someone, invite some to come, one to come with you so they will not miss out. Father, I thank you today. I thank you for how you meet us through your word. And I thank you, Lord, that when we just bow down, put Christ high, when we lower and prostrate ourselves to kiss his feet and put the word of God higher and above us, the word of God does the work for us. There's nothing, nothing for us to do but completely trust in you. And Father, I pray for all those today who are doing that. I pray for every interaction, every family member we meet, every relationship over this holiday time. God, help us to make it not just about the manger, but the cross, and more about Christ than about Santa or anything else. And Lord, we know that you'll open doors for us to do that because we ask these things today in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.